Hi, everybody. I have some exciting news. I am launching a Substack. I know. I keep telling you how I'm not a writer, and I'm still not a writer, but I am going to be writing about reading over on Substack. The Substack is called Unstacked, and you can find it at tracythomas.substack.com. There will be free options every Friday. There'll be a bunch of weekly roundups, announcements, all the shit I'm into. And then if you want to upgrade yourself to the paid subscription, I'm going to have author interviews, bonus episodes, anticipated reads, book pairings, community chats, all sorts of stuff. So, If that sounds like something you'd be into, go to tracythomas.substack.com and join Unstacked. And of course, I've got a special offer for you. If you go to tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10, you get 10% off your first year membership of Unstacked. You have from now until April 4th to redeem. Again, that's tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10 for 10% off Unstacked. Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome to The Stacks, a podcast about books and the people who read them. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas, and today we are joined by Pulitzer Prize winner Mitchell S. Jackson. Mitchell is here to discuss his latest book. It's called Fly, and it's the big book of basketball fashion. Fly is not only a quality lookbook packed with fantastic photos of your favorite NBA players, it also includes essays of incisive cultural commentary. It's the study of the intersection between high fashion and basketball, and it dates all the way back to the pre-Civil rights era. It's giving you suits and skinny ties all the way through to the current era of nerd chic and athleisure. Mitchell previously authored the memoir Survival Math and the novel The Residue Years. In addition to naming basketball's best and worst dressed athletes, we also talk today about reading for pleasure and what winning the Pulitzer Prize has meant to Mitchell both personally and professionally. Our November book club selection is the novel Severance by Ling Ma, which we will discuss on Wednesday, November 29th, when Mitchell Jackson returns to the stacks. Quick reminder, everything we talk about on each episode of the stacks can be found in the link in the show notes. Also, we have less than 200 reviews on Apple podcasts before we hit 2000. So that is my goal for the end of the year. Please head to Apple podcasts and leave a rating and a review for the show. If you like this show, join the Stacks Pack by going to patreon.com slash the stacks. You get a whole bunch of perks, including access to our Discord channel, attendance at our monthly virtual book club, bonus episodes, shout outs on the show, and a lot more. And by joining the Stacks Pack, you make it possible for me to make this independent podcast every single week. So if you like what you hear for only $5 a month, you can make sure that the Stacks never stops hitting your earballs. Head to patreon.com slash the Stacks and join. Shout out to our newest members of the Stacks, Noelle, Laura Griever, and Kate Carroll. Thank you all so much for joining and thank you to the entire Stacks Pack. I could not do it without you. All right, now it is time for my conversation with Mitchell S. Jackson. All right, everybody, I am so excited. I have someone that I have been sort of following on the internet for a long time on the show, but never actually had on the show, which seems crazy, but I'm thrilled to welcome author, Pulitzer Prize winner, Mitchell Jackson. Mitchell, welcome to the Stacks. Hey, thank you for having me. I'm so excited. Your new book is called Fly. It's the big book of basketball fashion, which we're going to talk about. But before we get into that, can you just sort of tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, well, I'm from Portland, Oregon, and I'm I'm very pro-Portland. I mean, I have a <laughs> tattoo of a rose on me. It says Portland on it. Um, I take a lot of pride in being from not even from the Northwest, just from Portland, Oregon. Um, I went to um, NYU for graduate school in creative writing. And uh, so I ended up moving to New York in 2002 and stayed there almost 20 years. Um, In the meanwhile, I started teaching, uh, taught at NYU for a long time and then moved to Chicago uh, where I thought I was going to stay for a little while and uh, didn't only stay for a year. (laughs) And now I'm at ASU teaching. Um, I mean, most people, if you go back to my first novel, it's autobiographical, know that my mother struggled with addiction and that I went to prison. Feel so far away now that it's it's like a part of my bio that I'm like, is that someone else's bio or is it mine? But <laughs> but it but it's there. 
Um, yeah, and so I have a couple of books. Yeah, you do. And you have a Pulitzer for an article you wrote. Yes. We're going to get Pulitzer. to that. Yeah. I have Pulitzer-related questions. Don't worry. <laughs> um, so you're in Arizona now? Yes. You know, I went to NYU for undergrad, so we were probably I, there at the same time. I didn't know that. No, I didn't. What did yeah, you study? Yeah. I was a theater major, so I was oh, a Tisch. He was a Tisch, yeah. yeah. I, my office was right across from Tisch, 726 oh, really? Broadway, yep. Okay, we were 721, <laughs> know the vibes, love it there. That's so interesting. I always think it's, I found so many people in doing the show who were NYU adjacent who were there at the same time as me, and it's yeah. just such a crazy thing to know that we were like all within a few blocks of each other, yeah. and you know, that it took years and years for our paths to cross. Right, <laughs> right small world yeah. um okay let's talk about basketball fashion first mm-hmm. let's talk about basketball mm-hmm. are you a trailblazers fan i am okay. uh i Uh-oh. think the degree to which i'm a trailblazers fan it varies um okay. you know when i was there we had clyde drexler we had terry porter nice. so those were great teams and and i had never left portland so i was a diehard blazer fan because that's what you are when you're in portland when I moved away, I, I started to like players more than Ugh. I liked the team. Um, I hate this. I yeah. hate this play. I hate yeah. the player fandom. It's yeah. my. It's a huge pet peeve for me. Yeah. Well, <laughs> well, it, I think it really comes out of the way the league operates now, right? Like players have a lot more autonomy and freedom mm-hmm. to move around. So, you know, you can like a team, but you know, you liked the Lakers because of Magic and Kareem and James Worthy, right? You know. Sure, you sure, like Chicago because sure. of MJ. So if they moved, <laughs> it'd be a different right. story. You had to make some adjustments. Uh, see, I, I'm from Oakland. I'm a Warriors fan. Yeah, I was a Warriors fan my whole life. Yeah, It's weird to be a Warriors fan now because everybody's a Warriors fan. Yeah, exactly. But I always tell the story. I was a Warriors fan when we were going to see, you know, the 13 win season and that yeah. whole thing. <laughs> um, so I just, I can't get behind the player thing. I'm yeah. such a team person. Yeah. But who are the players that you're into? Who are the players that you follow? Well, I, I like LeBron. Um, I like Steph. Um, a lot. I like Giannis. Um, okay. I mean, yeah, I guess that's like kind of wet because those are <laughs> the players that yeah. everyone likes. But I guess I, yeah, what I'm really is. saying is I like greatness. Yeah. Okay. I'll yeah. take that. I'll yeah. take that. Um, okay. Why basketball and fashion? What was exciting to you about this project? Why did you want to take it on? Ever since I was a little kid, I love fashion. I mean, I mm-hmm. used to browse so many GQ magazines and Esquires mm. and raid my uncle's closets. And, uh, even when I couldn't afford it. And I, my uncle used to work at St. Vincent de Paul, just kind of like a Salvation Army for us. And uh, he would say, like, go into the store and, and get um, get what you want. So I would mm. be in there browsing other people's, you know, leftover yeah. hand-me-downs. Um, so I've loved fashion since I was little. Uh, and then I played basketball. I played all the way through junior college. Um, I like to think I was good. My last year playing, I averaged over twenty, so I wasn't, you know, I okay. wasn't a bad player. Okay. Um, so yes. What position? Uh, guard. I was supposed to be a point guard. I was really an undersized two because I like to shoot. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. So so that is like my kind of baseline, and then I think if you're paying attention even remotely, you know that we're living in a really big era of uh, fashion and professional sports and. Yeah. Now, basketball has led the way in that. So uh, that all made sense when they brought the idea to me, which was my my editor at Hearst. Um, mm. He's the one that brought the idea to me, and it just it made sense. Okay, I I I love the book. Mm-hmm. I love the photos. I loved hearing sort of your analysis. I could have done like a hundred more pages of you talking about it. <laughs> I was like, this book's too short for me. I need more pictures, more more Mitchell, but. Yeah. Um, one of the so when I was at NYU, mm-hmm. I wrote a paper that I've talked about on the show a lot. It's my most famous work of homework I ever did in school, <laughs> which was about um, hip hop. It was a hip hop culture class taught by Jason King. Do you know Jason King? I that name He's now at I USC. So. 
he's like sort of like a famous hip hop writer, mm-hmm. academic guy. Anyways, I didn't know that at the time. I was just like, oh, Mr. King. But anyways, <laughs> um, he it, we could write about anything we wanted mm-hmm. related to hip hop for our final paper. And I wrote about hip hop and basketball because I read this great article by David Zirin in his book or great essay. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I want to write about it. And I talked a lot about David Stern being the police of fashion mm-hmm. um, around uh, Allen Iverson. Yeah. And the reason that it's my most famous piece of homework is because that's the most thing, the thing I'm most proud of. I was like, I'm really a genius. Yeah. <laughs> um, but a question that I've always had, and I hope you have the answer to me, mm-hmm. because so often we're told that like malice in the palace, that fight yeah. was like, to blame for the dress code. Mm-hmm. But I, I always had questions about that because they were in uniform during that time. Yeah. Right? Like, it wasn't it wasn't as if they were outside the arena after the game yeah. wearing baggy <laughs> jeans yeah. and an oversized jersey. So I'm wondering, like, how you see, if you see mm-hmm. that moment as actually being crucial for the dress code or yeah. or if there was were other, like, inciting incidents. Yeah, I, I'm glad that you said that because I think inciting incidents is a way to look at it or maybe broader context. Like, mm-hmm. I think we have to look at Malice in the Palace in relationship to Michael Jordan, which is the era that comes before Iverson's era, right? right? And so those guys were, um, they were like 80s level celebrities or 90s level, so where you 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 didn't really let people into your life, you know, like mm-hmm. everything you mm-hmm. did was perfect. And Jordan was the best example of that. Uh, right. You know, there, there was a little stuff with him gambling, but even that thing like tamped down. Right. And when his dad yeah, got yeah, killed, yeah. they tamped it down. So, so Iverson, I think was a representative of like the antithesis of Michael Jordan. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. he's also, they can clearly see that he's the most impactful player of that era. Right. So we're leaving Jordan and we're going into an era of Iverson and he could be, I think he could be perceived as like fucking up the money, right? Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. Jordan mm-hmm. has got us to this apex and here comes this young guy who is hip hop, right? I think Iverson and I are a few months apart in age. And uh, okay, so I think, you know, there there's, I remember listening to Sugar Hill Gang. I'm, I can picture the candy cane. Like there is not a, a time in my life where hip hop didn't exist. But for those players right before Iverson, they remember when they were young, hip hop didn't exist yet. You know, so so I think the malice and the palace was the tipping point. But it it Mm -hmm. has to be seen in the context of like the new guard has taken on an aesthetic that makes people uncomfortable. And that hip hop is already seen as this like brash we don't listen, right? Like they built that on a counterculture. It is a counterculture, right? right? It began as counterculture. So if you're, if you are David Stern, your league is culture. You can't have the leading person in this era be counterculture. It's, it's right. like not good for the league. I feel like what's interesting about basketball when it comes to like the product and the players yeah. is that so many of the arenas are filled with white middle-aged Yes. Wealthy people. Yeah. But so many of the people on the court who make the product are young black people. And it's at odds constantly in a way that I feel like other sports, it yeah. doesn't feel that way. Like I think about games in like Utah and yeah, like, exactly. wasn't there a thing recently with like like a few years ago with Russell Westbrook? Yeah, somebody said something crazy. Yeah. And I just think about that and like with the dress code specifically. It just feels so punitive. Yes. <laughs> you know, like it's yeah. like you're punishing your product for being who they are. Yeah. I don't know. I, I don't know. If, like, does the dress code still exist? Because they'd be wearing I different think things technically now. it does. It's just <laughs> yeah. not enforced anymore. Yeah. I don't know if they ever took it off the book. T-shirts and stuff yeah. now. And I'm like, mm. I mean, I love to see it, but I definitely feel like it's you think it's on the books, but it's just like. Yeah. Adam Silver, who has no spine, just let them do whatever they want. <laughs> I, I think he has a spine. I just think he he's a different era of yes, part, right? Like he, Adam Silver, damn near grew up with hip hop. Like he, I think he's, I don't know if he's right. sixty, right? So oh, that's that's yeah. different than David Stern. Sure, yeah. I'm looking up how old he is, yeah. Um, I just think he know. I I don't think he has a spine. Mm-hmm. He was born in 1962, so he just he's 61. He just yeah. turned 61. See? Um, yeah. So he grew up 
he, yeah. And I, I mean, I also think that like the NBA needed an Adam Silver. They couldn't have another David Stern. Stern right. Yeah. Yeah. For yeah. sure. Yeah. LeBron wouldn't, LeBron needs space to be in charge. And yeah. <laughs> David Stern and him would just clash. Yeah. Heads. Um, in the book, you don't, you demarcate the book by era and mm. not by like decade or whatever. Yeah. Was it easy for you to come up with the eras or did you have a hard time like figuring out what was what and how did you ultimately decide? Yeah, I had a hard time. Um, I had to, I mean, so it was built on the aesthetics, right? So I had to like look at a lot of pictures and mm-hmm. and try to figure out when the shifts happen. So mm. that's the first thing. So, you know, if you're looking and you're saying, oh man, it's a lot of people look different in 68 than they did in 50. Then it's like, okay, well, what's happening in 68? That's important. Mm. So it was a lot of that. And and it was a lot harder, obviously, in the areas that I wasn't alive for, right? Like I can, sure. I knew that Iverson was going to be something. I knew that, you know, I had to talk about Instagram in a way that shaped. But when we talk about 1949, uh, I, I had less of a handle on that. And also finding pictures of those guys was a lot right. harder too, yeah. I think it was attractive to do it by decades because, you know, the NBA 50, the NBA 75. So, sure. but it ju- it didn't really make sense because a decade doesn't really note any shift except for time yeah. passing. Right. Um, how did you research the older, the older decades, like the 50s, 60s, 70s? Yeah. Um, a lot of reading up on the that time period and who were the good players uh and then once i found who the players were then kind of going back and looking at okay well who can i find some photos of bob Cousy? obviously the stars were a lot easier to find but i mean mm-hmm. it was so few stars back then um right. so yeah doing a lot of that and then finding the name like the three guys that that broke the color barrier were harder to find right it's, it's, right and it's hard to get them in street clothes too Right. Um, <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> yeah. So if you notice that early in the in the in the book early on, the stars, there's, you know, Wilt and, you know, some Bill Russell, but it's harder to find, you know, those other guys in um in street clothes. Um, okay, I have to do superlatives with you, of okay. course, because it's my dream. <laughs> okay. Who who are your best and worst dressed and most ambitiously dressed now? And then ever in the history of basketball. Okay. My best dressed. That's hard. I'm going to pick two people because okay. I think LeBron <laughs> is fashionable. Um, and I think, I think as a kind of, like, I feel like also the hip hop effect on it, it's aspirational. And I think LeBron mm-hmm. dresses like most people would want to dress if they were the star of a professional sports league. Sure, sure. Um, I think in terms of style, um, Shea is probably the leader. So so he's, he's, um, I feel like his look is not translatable to the masses, but that he's figured Mm -hmm. out a way to represent himself Mm. in a way that feels stylish. I I, want to demarcate between style and fashion, right? So fashion is like, you know what brands to wear. You sure. you know what's in season, what isn't, right? Like you can pick that stuff. Right. And there's a lot of fashionable players in the league. I we, think LeBron is fashionable. Yes, right. That's what I'm saying. He's fashionable. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, so yeah. if you knew everything to wear and the right brand, like you get the Tiffany Jordans or the Tiffany Air right. Force Ones, like you're fashionable. But then when you're like doing something different that other people can't imagine, I feel like that's the Jordan Clarkson. That's the Shay. Mm-hmm. That's. Yeah. So those guys, and I think, you know, it's probably arguable between Jordan Clarkson and Shea because they really have kind of their own particular aesthetic, but those guys feel more fashionable. Like years down the line, they're going to look different, but it's it's going to look like them. Got it. And what about worst dress? Don't get out of worst dress. Worst <laughs> That's dress. That's what I'm really here for. Uh, I, I know who I think it is. Tyler Hero. Oh, I was gonna say Steph Curry. <laughs> yeah, Steph has his moments though. He dressed as so embarrassing all the time, yeah. and I'm like, you're too rich to yeah. not have something cute on, my guy. But you see that the photos that I have in here, uh, 
in I think it's maybe the last era where he's in the um I think they shot him in the in the arena. And it's for GQ, uh, originally in GQ. But those are good. He has some nice drees on. He has like a stocking cap. He probably cap. has a real stylist. Yeah, no question. Yeah, I don't think... His if, everyday if, stylist is horrible. Yeah, if left to himself, I don't feel like Steph is the, is the guy. But he's also so nice. I don't want to be too punitive on him. But Tyler... Well, he's he, my favorite player, but he looks insane. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but 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 I feel like the other thing about him is, and this is why I, I distinguish between him and uh, and Tyler Hero. Tyler Hero feels like he's pressing for us to say that he's fashionable, and he always I looks see. like he right, doesn't right, feel right. comfortable, right? right? Like he's right, trying right. to be. Whereas Steph is just like, I'm not a fashionable dude. I just put this on. Like I don't think Steph in his head is like, I'm that dude in terms of fashion. Right. I agree with that. Um. My most, well, I, I'm a huge Russell Westbrook fan. Okay. I just love, I think he's, I don't think he's always the best dressed, yeah. but I love the way he's pushing. Yes. I think he's like the most ambitious, yeah. right? I really am a fan of um, Paul George. I yeah. like the way he dresses. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I yeah. like him. It's sort of like a little more subtle. It feels yeah. attainable, but also like it's always fits right, yeah. which I feel like basketball players who wear clothes that fit right should get extra credit because yeah. that's hard because of their body shapes yeah. and sizes. Yeah. Like, they're not wearing a regular, regular, you know, size large. It's like a large, triple, extra long yeah. type stuff. So uh, I really like him. I think- and then I should say my god sister, she dresses uh, Spidey uh, yes. Mitchell, yeah. Yeah. and I love how he dresses, but I'm also biased because I love her. But He's solid, yeah, but love- he has a kind of frame he has a stuff. weird walk. Yeah. He walks crazy. Yeah, he's definitely she- <laughs> slew footed or something. But he's also like a short, like he's built like a running yeah. back damn near. So it, the, yeah. the clothes look different on him. I do That's see true. what you're saying about Paul George. And I would say Paul George um, and Rudy Gay are basically the same mm-hmm. aesthetic. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And, and, mm-hmm. and Rudy Gay was doing it first. Like he's, I think he's yeah older player in the league. So, the, and but also... Both of those guys are basically emulating where Melo is right now. It's like sure. athleisure. It's like fear of yes. God. You know, yeah. so it's like comfy sheets. Yes, yes. <laughs> Which yes. is my personal yeah. aesthetic as well. <laughs> okay. See, now we know. Now we know. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. I think I just like that look. I think Westbrook is strange because Westbrook, when he was trying to make himself into the fashion king, was taking a lot more risk. But of late, and especially now that he's promoting his brand, he looks regular. He looks regular again. Yeah. I actually, I live in LA and I saw him out at dinner and I mm. was like, he's wearing a white tee and jeans. Exactly. How dare he let me down in this <laughs> exactly. moment? Because I was Chucks like, oh my God, something. it's Russell Westbrook. Yeah. And then I was like, what's he wearing? And it was like the most basic shit. Yeah. It was like, it was a cool cut tee, but it was just a white tee. Yeah. Um. Okay. I promised that I was going to ask you about winning the Pulitzer because okay. that's, first of all, amazing. Uh-huh. And second of all, what's that day like? Yeah. Because- I feel like if you publish like a a book yeah. or something, you might have more of a sense like mm-hmm. that you're in the running. But yeah. if you publish an article, yeah. it's sort of like, you know, how many articles are published a year? Yeah. And so I'm just wondering, like, did did you have any were you were you thinking there was a chance? Like, were you thinking I wrote the shit out of this, which you did? Um, <laughs> it was a piece on Ahmad Arbery in yeah. Runner Runner's World. Runner's right? World, yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Uh Yes, I had an idea. Uh, oh, you did? Yeah. So I remember, to take it all the way back, the day that I published it, um, I, you know, I put it on Facebook. And uh, one of my writer friends, a woman named Marie Helene Bertino, she wrote on, she was the first person to comment, I think. And uh, she said, and the winner of the Touch uh. and Such Pulitzer Prize goes to <laughs> Mitchell Jackson for this, and I and, and I hadn't thought about it before that because I've written dozens and dozens of things before and never once thought I didn't even know the process of the Pulitzer, mm-hmm. but uh, that story was also up for the National Magazine Award, so I was already a finalist for that. And the night okay. before, so the because of the pandemic, the the cere- both ceremonies got shifted. So the National right. Magazine Awards were the night before the Pulitzer. So oh, I, the okay. night they were virtual. So I was on that night with the whole team at Hearst and we won the National Magazine Awards. So I'm like floating. But I 
again, I had never gone through that process, so I didn't really understand it. So as soon as I finished, I got a, an email from the uh, publicity director at Hearst, and he was like, Mitch, I just want you to know, I don't know how much you know about the National Magazine Award. He was like, but this is our Oscars. So I'm mm. like, oh, shit, okay. I, now I feel good. Like, I'm celebrating. It's nice. <laughs> but the Pulitzer ceremonies are the next, well, afternoon for me. I was living in Chicago at the time. And so now I'm like, I, I know from research that there have been people who have won both of those prizes a few people before. So I'm like, oh, you know, it's a possibility. But it was, like, stressful. So I said, man, look, I'm going to take a nap right now. Like I don't even want to be mm. up when this thing happens. So I <laughs> lay down. But obviously, it's harder for me to go to sleep. It's like mm-hmm. noon in Chicago. And then right. I get a call from Tyimba Jess, um, who won a Pulitzer. I can't remember what year for his poetry collection. I think it was Lead Belly that won. And uh, Tyimba's also an NYU grad, graduated from me, okay. with me at, at, uh, in 2004 from NYU. So he calls me and I'm looking at my phone and Tyimba never calls me. Like we okay. text a couple of times, but a phone call. So I'm like... This is strange. Like, let me just answer. And I answer. And he's like, I was like, what's up, man? He was like, man, congratulations. And I was like, congratulations for what? He was like, man, you don't know you just want to pull us? So I was like, get the fuck out of here. <laughs> and uh, I I didn't, I still kind of didn't believe him. So I had to like, where do you find this out? Because they don't, they're not emailing you or anything. So I had to go on Twitter. Right. And, uh, and found out. So when I saw the Pulitzer people posted on Twitter, I was like, oh, it's real. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Okay. I don't know. This might be like too weird of mm. a big question. But you mentioned before your biography mm. and like that you had gone to jail and mm. like all this stuff. What is what is like winning the Pulitzer do to you? Mm-hmm. And like, does it change your perspective on yourself at all? or Or is it? Is it really just like an outside thing that feels nice and like is cool to add to your resume? Nah, not the Pulitzer. It it changes things. I mean, it materially changed my life because I was negotiating between two schools when it happened. So there's that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think most, uh, all the writers that I know, if you set out to do this and you, yeah, I don't even know if you say you care most of the writers i know like who wouldn't who would say i want to be a writer and i don't want a pulitzer so then if it happens it's both it's unbelievable um and you and i try to take a moment to experience it like to feel what it feels like to do i mean i have been writing i mean i went to graduate school my first one in 1999 i want a pulitzer in 2021 so we're talking more than 20 years of tapping on Mm -hmm. laptop keys, you know? So Mm -hmm. I wanted to be present in that moment. And I, and and normally, like, it's not the first award that I won, right? But like, normally a thing will happen and I'll give it a day and I'll be like, all right, like, you can't concentrate on, man, you got to make something. But I'm like, nah, man, like, maybe you give yourself a week this time. But Mm -hmm. also there was, so I have a fair number of writer friends for whom, that matters. And then I have so many people in my life for whom the Pulitzer, they don't even know what it is. I called right. my mama. I had a, I had like a massage already scheduled or something. So I was leaving the mm-hmm. house and I remember backing out of my garage and I called my mom and I was like, mom, you'll never believe this. Like, I just want a Pulitzer prize. She was like, oh, that's great, baby. She was like, what is it? <laughs> and I was like, I needed that. I needed yeah. that in that yeah. moment to like level it out. Yeah. yeah. Do you know the, do you know Van Lathan? Yeah, I know uh, who he is. I don't know him personally, but yeah. Okay. But you know who he is? Yeah. He won an Oscar a few years ago for yeah. a short film. And he, in his book, he talks about how his dad was like, why is everybody calling me, congratulating me for this Oscar <laughs> you won? And I just love that because that's the truth about like family and growing up and stuff. It doesn't yeah. matter. Yeah. Like, whether it's an Oscar or Pulitzer or some other, you know, industry specific award, yeah. like the people in your life, they just love you. They don't yeah. fucking care. <laughs> yeah. Like you care yeah. and your colleagues care and, you know, people who are interested in consuming whatever it is that you make care. Yeah. But the people who have known you since you were little, they don't, they already, you already won the Pulitzer yeah. in their mind. Like yeah. you already are the greatest writer they've ever <laughs> met. And I think that's like really humbling and also really just like 
fulfilling yeah. or like nurturing in a lot of ways. For sure. Um, okay, one more Pulitzer question, mm. then we'll take a quick break. Mm. You're working on a book yes. um, about the L.A. riots mm-hmm. in 92, which I no, no. literally cannot... 65, oh. 65. Oh, you're doing Watts? Yeah. Why did I think you were doing 92? Well, it, uh, well maybe you read about the ending because it ends in 92. Oh, <laughs> I didn't read about the ending. Spoiler alert. No, for some reason I thought it was... Under- okay, anyways, that's not the important part of the question. You're working on a new novel. Mm-hmm. You've been working on it, I'm assuming, for a while. Does winning that prize fuck up your juju at all? Like, do you start to feel paralyzed by your own greatness or like being recognized for your own greatness? No, not in the, in the way I think that you might be thinking like for me, it created a set of expectations outside of the fiction work. Right. So now Mm -hmm. it's like, I mean, I was already doing the S wire column, but it was fresh. And, but there's a whole set. I think, uh, it, it made me really consider what do I say yes to now? You know, like mm. now that if there's some TV stuff coming, do you say yes to that? How many events do you do or don't do? How long, right? I mean, every year there's a new Pulitzer winner, right? So like, if you don't take advantage of the year that you won the Pulitzer, right. Right. then you you could be pushed. So So there was a lot of that, which is not, none of this stuff. So I, I, I just make it like, there's a line between me being an author and me being a writer. And to be mm. a writer, I need quiet time. I need space. I need time to read. And I've been an author so much. Probably I've been more of an author since the Pulitzer than I have been a writer, really. Do you enjoy being an author? Uh, I'm comfortable with it. Like I'm not one of those mm-hmm. people who are like, um, I'm an introvert and I can't be around people. But then I also recognize is not doing the thing that I set out to do. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, so it, it's it's really hard to find, and I and I haven't found that 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 like right now we're doing this right, which is author stuff. Mm-hmm. But I also have a column that's due yesterday. <laughs> you know, oh, so like how am sorry I gonna- to your editor. <laughs> yeah, right. I'm gonna get back to you, man. Don't don't worry. It's, give me till Friday. It's coming. It's yeah. coming. It's coming. Don't worry. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I appreciate that a lot, actually, like the distinction between writing, writering and authoring. Yeah. Um, Okay, we're going to take a quick break Mm -hmm. and we'll be right back. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why for the last three plus years, I have been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day, and it makes me feel nourished and strong enough to tackle whatever else might come my way. That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. The nutritional insurance that AG1 provides has been vital to keeping me productive and focused. It helps me cover my bases in just about the time it takes to fill a glass of water, scoop in one scoop of AG1, and then drink it. So I don't know, 75 seconds? With the perfect mix of vitamins, probiotics, and nutrients from Whole Foods, I'm not stuck trying to assemble it all by myself, which would have considerably worse results. AG1 saves me all the time and hassle, and it has made such a difference in my overall mood and especially my gut health, among many other things. But don't take my word for it. Go ahead and try AG1. Let me know what you think. Whether you notice you're needing more nutrient support than you're used to, or you just need an edge for a tough workout, AG1 can be the ticket. If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1, and that's why I've partnered with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash the stacks. That's drinkag1.com slash the stacks. Check it out. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. This episode is brought to you in part by Noom. Forget one-size-fits-all diets. 
With Noom, you get a personalized weight loss plan that's tailored to your lifestyle. No food is off limits. Enjoy your favorites while discovering healthier habits. Noom's users love the flexible approach, blending psychology and biology to help you lose weight in a way that's sustainable for you. And great news for foodies. Noom just released the Noom Kitchen Cookbook with 100 delicious, healthy recipes. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. Grab your copy of The Noom Kitchen wherever books are sold. Okay, we're back from our break. I did not prep you for this, but we do a segment called Ask the Stacks, where someone's written in and they're looking for book recommendations. Okay. And I'm going to read to you what they said, and then we'll each give them some recommendations. You can do one or three or whatever. Okay. And people listening, you need to write in because I'm running low on submissions. So email askthestacks at thestackspodcast.com to get yours read on air. Okay, this comes from Deanna, and they say, my dad is retiring at the end of this year, and we have recently bonded over books. I buy him a stack of titles for almost all the gift-giving holidays, and it is my personal mission to expand his horizons beyond the likes of Michael Crichton, Andy (laughs) Weir, and Dan Brown. Mm -hmm. Favorites of the books that I've given him have been Homegoing by Yad Jesse, Blackwater Rising by Attica Locke, and Killers of the Flower Moon by David Graham. His least favorite have been Dangerous Women by Hope Adams and Zone One by Colson Whitehead, which he said was hard to read, but not that he disliked it. Probably should give him another. The man loves a book with plot, especially if the novel space has space or spies. He likes to learn. And once he retires, I think he'll turn to reading for more intellectual stimulation. So dipping our toe in more narrative nonfiction could be in order. Any recommendations? Do you want me to go first so you can think about it? Or do you uh, want to go? I got a couple. Okay, go ahead. Um, I would say Song of Solomon. Mm. Um, and the way, you know, he's searching for his father or really his legacy. There's so many mm-hmm. strong male figures, you know, milkman. Um, so I'd say that. And then because he had a bad time with Zone 1, I would give Coast another spin. And most people would probably say Underground Railroad. But I would actually say Nickel Boys. I was that was on my list. Yeah, Nickel Boys. Yeah. So I, yeah. I'm going to say those two. Okay, those are really good. I actually had both of those on my list and took both of them off. So I'm glad that I did (laughs) because I I went a different direction. So I went with The Sympathizer by Viet Thanh Nguyen because that has some spy elements, Mm -hmm. but it's also got a lot of plot. There's a lot going on and it's really great writing. Um, I went for narrative nonfiction recommendations since you said we could dip our toe in. I went with Men We Reaped by Ah, Jasmine Ward. Yeah. That's one of my favorite memoirs. It's one of my favorite books. I think the writing style is really engaging. I think mm-hmm. start the book starts from the end and works its way. Mm-hmm. No, it starts from the end and works its way to the beginning. There yeah. we go. Um, and then also um, I went with a super plot heavy novel, Home Fire by Camila Shamsi, which I love. I don't know that. It is not spies. Um, it's not spies, but it is about it's a retelling of um Antigone mm. and it ha- it's like this family drama and it's set in England and America and also I want to say Iran but maybe it's Iraq I can't remember somewhere in the Middle East like mm. and it's like got like ISIS type mm. you know whatever it's yeah. really really good mm. the ending is insane we did not hear on this show so people who are listening probably know and then the last thing I would say and I think this falls sort of in the Michael Crichton Dan Brown Andy Weir space but I just would like to give a plug for one of my favorite authors, John Krakauer. Mm. He is super duper dad nonfiction. <laughs> I love him. He's got books on everything. They're all super engaging. So those are our recs. Deanna, if you give them to your dad and he likes any of them, let us know. And everyone else, email askthestacks at thestackspodcast.com to get your book recommendations read on the air. And now, Mitchell, we're going to talk about all of your favorite and least favorite books. We start here always, two books you love, mm-hmm. one book you hate. Two books I love. Um, Well, I'm not going to mention Song of Solomon. So uh, the books that uh, when I was in graduate school and I read them and I was like, oh, I want to be able to do this. We're actually two short story collections. One of them is Jesus's Son by Dennis Johnson. We've done that on this show. I hated it. You did? Oh, I love that book. Oh, I love that book. I think Uh, I'm too stupid for that book. That's like a writer's book. Yes. That's a book for writers. Yes, yes, for for sure. sure. Yes, no question. Yeah. Uh, And then Drown by Juno Diaz. 
and oh. and drown mm-hmm. was a book where i we have a different experience right he's dominican he grew up in jersey um black and grew up in the northwest or portland uh but i recognize those young men those boys mm-hmm. and and the way that they were being uh sensitized to gender and violence and what it meant to be a man and yeah and then the voice and and even the aesthetic of the page like the Juno wasn't using quotation marks and if you look mm-hmm. at um my first book there are no quotation marks so it was a lot of stuff uh and I think probably also because I'm not a I wasn't a big reader so to have short story collections where I could take one or two at a time and really digest right. them and go back and reread them that was really important to me too Okay, wait, before you tell us the book you hate, I have two follow-up questions. Uh-huh. One is, if you were not a big reader, how did you know you wanted to be a writer? Yeah. Uh-huh. And then the other one is just about quotation marks. Why? What do you think that it adds to the book to leave them out? Okay. Uh, I mean, I have said that I came to reading through writing, that I uh-huh. thought I wanted to tell the story of my life. This is actually when I was in prison. And because I was already a college student as well. Like I knew that I didn't have the capabilities craft wise to do what I wanted to do. So then I started going to school for writing. And because I wanted to be a writer, they're like, well, you can't be a writer unless you're a reader. So I've actually mm-hmm. never read for pleasure. I've never picked up a book in my life and said, I just want to read this thing. Really? This, this, I know. Yeah. It's sad. Isn't and you it? don't, you don't have that impulse ever. It's Never. not sad. I'm the opposite. Yeah. I am a reader. Yeah. I love to read. I hate writing, but yeah. I do have to write perfect. Like yeah. I write a column, yeah. which I hate writing. Yeah. It is the bane of my existence. <laughs> and I never write for pleasure. I yeah. don't journal. I don't, I don't like to write. So yeah. I totally understand what you're saying. It's yeah. just, I've never heard uh, a writer yeah. say that. Yeah. So that, that is my experience that I came through it kind of backwards. Um, and then what was the the second one? The quote marks. The quote. Um, I mean, I've heard a lot of people, I mean, I read up a lot about why others didn't do it. And one of the things that most struck me was, uh, when you take, so it's, it's almost like when you take out the quote marks, it's, it's harder to delineate what is speech from what is narrative, but then also Mm -hmm. what is kind of dreamlike from what isn't. And so, Mm. And thinking about my first novel, and even now, like there are things that I have written about in the residue years that I'm actually now uncertain as to what the real memory is. Like, is it the one that I created in residue Uh. or is it my memory? And I would actually need to call people around that memory to actually figure out what's true. Um, (laughs) so, so, so the, the, the omission of quotation marks, it, it really like, to me, it speaks to how my memory works. Mm. Okay. What's a book you hate? You're not getting out of that. Yeah. Well, that's harder to me begin because for me, every book is a textbook. And so okay. if I hate it, it, there really isn't a hate. It's either like a, oh, I don't see anything that's valuable for me. Mm-hmm. Or I'm, and in that in that case, I probably would put it down. I can't remember the last book I put down, but let me think of a really? book that I uh look at this stack over here. Uh okay. So um here, here it is. I studied with this guy named Gordon Lish, who I think is still alive, but must be in his 90 now or something. And he was the most famous editor, probably in publishing in the 1980s. He used mm-hmm. to edit Raymond Carver, and he also edited this guy named uh, Barry Hanna. Barry Hanna is a Southern writer. He's from uh, Mississippi. And he had a short story collection called Ray, which he published, I want to say, in the 60s. Maybe it was like early 70s. But So I read it when I was studying with Lish, and I was really just thinking about language. Like I was like, okay, there's a template mm-hmm. for how to make sentences. Barry, Barry Hanna is one of the greatest pro stylists maybe ever. And I reread, I was teaching a, a workshop um, about Ray probably five years ago. So I had to reread Ray. And there is so much racism oh. in that book because <laughs> it's set in Mississippi in the 1950s. Mm. And mm, so rereading okay. it, and, and I was like, <laughs> how the fuck did I miss all of it? And then I, I actually right. started my lecture by apologizing to the students for the amount- To making them read it. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. But it's strange because given the context of me just as a writer, I was looking at sentences and syntax and metaphor and, and I was like, okay, well, all right. And then all these years later, I'm like looking at it through the lens of maybe a scholar or something and it was totally right. different. Okay. I want to go back to this not reading for pleasure. Yes. I need to know what you do for like pre- pleasure relaxation if it's not reading. <laughs> yeah. And also, or like hobby. Yeah. And then also, do you enjoy reading or mm-hmm. can you not can you not get to that place because you're always thinking about what you're reading as far as like a tool mm-hmm. for your own writing um yes i enjoy reading but i enjoy reading for a different reason i think that most people i think most people are reading for like story they mm-hmm. want to like i want to know how it ends and i i don't yes. i read for language so okay. i'm constantly underlining like is this a great metaphor? What's this word that I haven't, I don't know, or I haven't seen used like this? And when I find mm. that in work, it gives me joy. Because I'm like, You're oh. like an English teacher's dream. Student. Yeah. <laughs> I guess so, Oh, yeah. I found a simile. Yes. I love the simile. You're like the nerd who I hate. I'm like, okay, Mitchell, we get it. Yeah. The, the moon is like a star or whatever. The moon is like a glass of milk. There Congratulations. That's me. That's me. That is me. But that's so pleasurable. Like the, the books that I love, mm. you look at them. I mean, they're marked, marked, marked up. Um, oh, my gosh. I'm so excited for us to do book club because I'm the total opposite reader. Yeah. We're reading Severance and yeah. I'm like so excited about it because I'm like, I can't wait for a pandemic novel. Yeah. I'm such like a big picture reader. Yeah. Sometimes a word or a moment will jump out at me, mm-hmm. but it has to be outstanding. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I'm not going to see a little narrative tool <laughs> like the only the only like english teacher thing that i'm really into is alliteration because yeah. i sometimes read out loud yeah. and i love alliteration because yeah. i'm yeah. a theater person yes. so i'm like oh when you hear it out loud you're like oh there's so much you could do with yeah. or whatever yeah. but i'm the total opposite reader of you so now mm. i'm extra excited yeah yeah i mean that's why i like reading uh beckett you know like there's oh, a yes. lot of alliteration there August Wilson, right? Like to me, yeah. August Wilson. Well, he's my A one. Yeah. Oh my, he's it's him and Shakespeare for me. Yeah. Those are my two playwrights, and I love Shakespeare, which is all language, yeah. but I love it for different reasons. I think than most people. Yeah. Um. Okay. What's the last great book you read? Um. So strange because again, I never. I, there are no books that I just pick up. You know, it's right. it's always like I'm like tonight I'm doing an event with Jackie Woodson. So when we mm. get done with this, I got to finish Jackie's book, have mm-hmm. 20 questions mm-hmm. for her. I, mm-hmm. So, I mean, I read Nana's book. I did an event with him. I think oh, it's yeah. a really great book. But I feel that almost feels like cheating because mm-hmm. they told me to read the book. You know, like it is great. Sure. But then, so I'm trying to think of a book that I just picked up. It's not, that's not cheating though. Okay. All right. So. It's <laughs> not cheating. So. Uh, you, can, you can do that. Chain Gang. Yes. Chain Gang. Oh, I didn't finish yet, but uh, this to me, it's a travesty that this is not up for the National Book Award. But Nicole Seeley's The Ferguson Project, or I think that's what oh, it's called. Oh, for poetry. poetry yeah. yeah. I read yeah, the, probably yeah. more poetry than I read narrative or prose. Mm. Yeah. Interesting. Do, would you ever write poetry? I would, but for me uh-huh. to write poetry, I would probably... I would have to study it. Like I would have to become a Kavi Khanum fellow and go for summer because because it's like if you gonna it's not something that I would treat lightly, you know. And I think the expectation like I can't just dabble in some writing shit. Like it actually has to be good. (laughs) I get the sense from you. You said at the beginning you like players that are great, great, like you like greatness, and I can tell that that's clearly something that you also put that standard on yourself yeah. as a writer. Yeah. Like that you're not just going to put something out that you don't think is like, yeah, nah. at least an attempt, at least an attempt at greatness. Right. Yeah. Which I appreciate. Cause I too like greatness. <laughs> I don't, people who are okay with mediocrity, yeah. I don't get it. Yeah. It like doesn't, it, it does not <laughs> compute for me. Right. Like I can't, I don't understand it. Anyways. Yeah. Um, what are you reading right now besides Jackie Woodson's book? Mm, I'm reading, um, Terrence Hayes' new collection, oh. so to speak. Okay. Um, I'm rereading um, Sophia's uh, How to Say Babylon. Like, I mean, I'm oh. I read it while it was being drafted, but I'm 
I want to see it in the in the book form. And uh, oh, I I read the first two stories in uh, "If I Survive You," uh, oh, and okay. that first story is like amazing. Um, so yeah, yeah. so that, that's that's what I got open. How do you pick what you're going to read next? I'm especially interested in this since I know now that you read like you're looking for something sort of when you're reading. Yeah. How do you decide what to pick up if it's not for work? Yeah. If it's not for like an event. So it's it's okay for poetry, right? Like which poets do I love? And and it's probably a poet that I've already read or I'll ask for a recommendation. Like I'm on a thread with a bunch of poets and probably mm. three people on there got Pulitzers on this thread. So I'm mm. like, I feel comfortable saying like, hey, <laughs> whose collection should I be reading? Uh, and then on the pro side, I'll, I'll take Rex, but I'll read like the first story or a few. And I'm like, man, if I, if I don't see it in there, like if I, if I can see that you're not a pro stylist, I'm putting it down. Like I'm not looking for your tricks mm-hmm. and plot. Um, uh, the last book that I kind of discovered on my own, actually I didn't discover it on, was Brian Washington's Lot. Oh, I love that book. Love I just it. did an event with him yeah. the other day yeah. for his new book. Yeah, he I keeps love how writing. He yeah, yeah. That that book lot, it it to me, it was like a gay Houston version of Drown. Mm, okay. Um and, okay. and 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 I and I I say that with Drown being like in my top three yeah. collections, like that, all of Hager's children, Drown and Lot are those are my wow. those are my ones. Yeah. I love that. Um are there any genres that you avoid? Yeah, any, oh, not any. I don't read fantasy, which is okay. sucks because my students are writing fantasy. So I have to read a little bit, but like <laughs> if left to my own right. devices, I'm not reading fantasy. I'm not reading, I don't read any genre stuff, I guess, is mm-hmm. because I feel like the emphasis is on plot. And once you kind of understand plot, you know, on mm-hmm. a technical level, it's like you can do mm-hmm. what you need to do plot wise. Right. Right. Do you ever listen to audiobooks? I have not. I tried. Oh, actually, the the uh-huh. only audiobook that I I ever listened to beginning to end was um Cast. Oh. Yeah. Interesting. And what did cra- you think of that? I is again, the reason why cuz I can't remember. Mm. <laughs> so what I remember was it was a lot of great anecdotes and yeah. and thinking that like basically that you understand the whole book in the first like the premise of what cast is and how it works, you get very early. And then everything else is like just an example of yeah. that thing. Yeah. I read that book off the page and I feel the same. I think also that book was very disappointing for me mm. because The Warmth of Other Suns was yeah. such an important book, as is such an important book to yeah. me. And so I was like expecting that level of like, <gasps> yeah. and it was sort of just like, this is a book. Yeah. And I'm like, ah. um, Can you do that twice? You know, I, like how many people have know. done the warmth of other suns twice? How many people have done the warmth of other suns once? That's what I'm saying. Yeah. So if you do it, it's like, you know, yeah. like think about the authors that hit that. Do right. you get it again? I am the person I am most looking forward to their next book is, do you know that book Blood in the Water about the Attica prison uprising? Yes, yes. By Heather Ann Thompson. Yeah, I know so Heather. her next book. Yeah, it's about she, the Detroit my, something, right? The, no, it's about the move bombing. Yes, that's Philly. it. Yes, yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah. So she is the person, because Blood in the Water is one of my all-time favorites. I think it's like just so incredible. Yeah. So I, she's the person that I'm like, if you can do it twice, mm. I think she might be the one to do it yeah. twice. Fingers crossed. Have you ever read um, um, John Edgar Wideman's Philadelphia's Fire? I haven't. It's a novel that won the Penn Faulkner Award, and it is about that move bombing as well. Is it? Yeah, so check oh, that out. okay. I'll check it out. I will. I will. I love, that's my favorite kind of fiction. It's mm-hmm. like fiction about a historical event that I'm interested in, yeah. which is why I'm so excited about your book. Though yeah. I did think it was about the 92 riots, yeah. but 65 is also great yes. for me. Yeah. <laughs> I, I love a riot. I'm available <laughs> at any time to read about anybody's riot. doesn't matter when or where. Um, do you have a favorite bookstore? Uh, Pals. I mean, I'm a Portland yeah. guy. Feels I mean, grand when you're in there. Yeah. 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 I remember the first time I went there, I was like, Whoa, yeah, this is amazing. Yeah. Um, what's your ideal reading setup? Where are you? Location, time of day? Is mm-hmm. there a snack and beverage situation? Uh, 
it's early in the morning. Anything that has to do with my mind is best in the morning. Uh, mm. And and if it's probably right after I've written something that I love and I need mm. to take a break. So if I get up in the morning and I don't write and I start reading, then I feel guilty that I haven't written. But if I have already done something, I'm like, okay, cool. Like, I feel good today. And I still got some energy that I'm like, okay, this is a great. And it's also probably going to inspire me to write something. It's so crazy because I'll be reading and I'll see one word that will solve an issue that I had in my work. It could just be a single word. And I'll be like, oh, shit, Mm. this was a word that I needed to encounter to solve this other thing that I was doing over here. That's so cool. That's cool because it also gives your reading life so much purpose, yes. right? Like that you could uncover something at any moment. Yeah. Um, okay, what's the last book that made you laugh? Mm. Uh, um, uh, Bliss Montage. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Ling yeah, Ling Ma. Okay. What about the last book that made you angry? Uh, I think um, when we talk about these kind of intense emotions, I've always, I feel like, I had already gone through so much personal shit by the time I came to reading, which I was in my 20s, that I was like, how dare you get upset about some make believe Mm. shit or something, you know? So, so I think, I think that that kind of colors it, but I will say that there are things that I read, like reading about Hamas, you know, and Mm -hmm. what's happening, like that angers me. That's real. But, but, but like on the fiction side, maybe in, uh, uh, chain gang, just the, 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 like for what it made me think about criminal justice and Mm -hmm. and the way that people are dehumanized inside. Like there's, Mm. there's nothing, uh, I'm going to next week with, um, Dwayne Betts to, uh, Uh. to, uh, to Otisville prison, uh, see him set up his 200th library. And, and one of the things, no matter, and I do a lot of, not as much as him, but I visit a fair number of prisons myself and, the one thing that I I know that I have in common with anyone that's on the inside is they have been debased by coming mm-hmm. through a prison. So where they make you strip and tell you to bend over and cough and spread like that to me is the most dehumanizing thing. And for when I look a man in the eye or whoever it is, a woman in the eye or whatever their gender is, like I know that they've been through that. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I just have like two or three more for you. Mm-hmm. Um, are there any books that you feel embarrassed, or maybe that's not the right mm-hmm. word, for never having read? Yeah, yeah. Moby Dick. I'm actually not mm. that embarrassed, but we used to do a reading. Uh, this this woman named Polly Bresnik used to put on a, I don't know what you call them, but it, it was like 50 authors reading Moby Dick all across New York. Oh, and you okay. would get like, you know, four pages to read. So mm-hmm. I've read, I did that maybe three years. So I read probably 25 or 70. And I would read like <laughs> a little bit before and a little after, but I'm like, man, this shit too long. Like for me, again, because I'm not a reader, I feel like if I spend a thousand pages reading one book, that's four books that I might've learned something craft-wise from yeah, that I spent only in that one space. So yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's really interesting. Um, if you were a high school English teacher, mm-hmm. what is a book that you would assign to your students? Uh, the Fire, The Fire Next Time. Mm, okay. Yeah. And then this is the last one for you. Mm-hmm. I stole this from the New York Times. <laughs> require the current president of the United States to read one book. Mm-hmm. What would you want it to be? It would be something about retirement. Like mm-hmm. how to know when to quit. <laughs> When you've passed your moment, uh, I think he need to do some soul searching. <laughs> Truly. Yeah. Step down, yeah, Joe. Yeah. Thank you so much. This was amazing. Mm-hmm. I'm a little obsessed with you. And so, so excited you're coming back. And yeah. we're going to get to talk more about uh, Severance by Ling Ma yeah. on November 29th. So mm-hmm. everyone get your copy, read with us. If you want 10% off the book, you can order it through my independent bookstore reparations club and use yeah. the code stacks 10 and you can get 10% off the book. Yeah. But um, Mitchell, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. I want to add a, just a little plug. Ling Ma and I have the same editor. So Jenna Johnson, 
uh, I, I hope she this. can. I hope she can bring some of that ling ma juice to my novel about the sixty five and ninety two revolts. <laughs> <laughs> and with that, we will see you all in the stacks. All right, y'all, that does it for us today. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you to Mitchell Jackson for being my guest. I'd also like to thank Alana Gold for helping to make this conversation possible. Remember, this month's book club pick is the post-apocalyptic pandemic novel Severance by Ling Ma. We will discuss the book on Wednesday, November 29th with Mitchell S. Jackson. If you love this show and you want inside access to it, head to patreon.com slash the stacks. And for just $5 a month, you can join the Stacks Pack. Make sure you're subscribed to the Stacks or if you listen to your podcasts. And if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, be sure to leave us a rating and a review. We are so close to 2,000 reviews. For more from the Stacks, follow us on social media at the Stacks Pod on Instagram, Threads, and TikTok, and at the Stacks Pod underscore on Twitter. And you can check out our website at thestackspodcast.com. This episode of The Stacks was edited by Christian Duenas with production assistance from Lauren Tyree. Our graphic designer is Robin McCrite, and our theme music is from Tagirajis. The Stacks is created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas. 